Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is sponsored by Wondery's Generation Y podcast. Essential listening for true fans of true crime. Hosts Aaron and Justin dissect some of the craziest and most notable murders, crimes, and conspiracy theories together. Follow the Generation Y podcast on Amazon Music or listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus on Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. This episode features an immersive audio experience. We recommend listening with headphones. Welcome into the annual Halloween edition of Disturbed, the one episode of the year where we feature fictional stories. But the terror is just as real. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. We open the show featuring the writing of Reddit author MaliaGirl1314, with performances by Matt Bradford, Rhiannon Mauschel, Tanya Eby, Nicole Doolin, and Tom Eglio. And don't look now, but she just might be peeking at you. My wife Lynn and I have been together for six years and married for 11 months. Our entire history together has been very normal. Never once have I noticed any weird behaviors or red flags. I can't stress enough how out of character this whole thing is for her. You see, Lynn is very kind, intelligent, and thoughtful. She's always been the no-nonsense type of person. Being childish or trying to scare me is not something she'd normally do. She doesn't even like watching horror movies. When we started dating, she agreed to watch The Shining with me because she knew how much I loved horror. She was so scared that she didn't even make it through half the movie before we had to turn it off. She isn't into anything creepy and has never been into pranks. It's just not her cup of tea. And that's fine. But that's what's so strange about this. It's just so unlike her. I should also add that she never had any mental health issues as far as I'm aware, and it doesn't run in her family. I know some people are able to hide their mental health problems, but in the six years we've been together, I think I would have seen some sort of sign. Well, two months ago, I was in the kitchen making myself some coffee before work. I was running a bit late that morning and knew I wouldn't be able to make it to Dunkin' Donuts for my usual fix. I took a sip of my coffee as I hurried down the hall towards the front door when I happened to notice Lynn peeking at me from around the corner ahead of me. I could only see her eyes and a strand of her long dark hair hanging against the wall. The rest of her body was concealed behind the corner. I nearly spilled my coffee when I saw her. I did burn the shit out of my lips. Jeez, Lynn, I wiped a few drops of coffee from my pants. He scared the shit out of me. She immediately popped out of view like a little kid that had been caught. I heard her scurry off towards the living room. By the time I got to the front door, she was out of sight. It was really weird, and just totally out of character for her, like I said. But I also found it kind of funny that she was being more playful and a little less serious. I shouted that I loved her, and called her a weirdo. As I shut the door behind me, I heard her laughing. Her behavior was a bit odd, 
but it certainly wasn't something to call a priest over. I forgot about it by lunch. By the time I got home, she was her normal self again. I didn't bring it up, and neither did she, and life went on. Well, the next incident happened three days later. It was around 2am and I had woken up to get a drink. I was standing at the kitchen island, jug of OJ in hand, when I felt a strong feeling that I was being watched. For whatever reason, I looked down at the floor and saw my wife's smiling face staring back. She was peeking at me from the other side of the island, staring up at me with wide unblinking eyes and grinning. Grinning like the Cheshire cat. I screamed, I'll admit it, not out of irritation, but fear. For some reason, at that moment, I was scared. At the sound of my scream, Lynn scuttled backwards out of my view, her hands and feet smacking the floor as she hurried out of the kitchen on all fours. I didn't run after her, or even yell after her. I just stood there frozen in shock, wondering what the fuck had possessed her to do that. It took me a little longer than I'd like to admit to go back upstairs, but... I eventually did. When I got to our bedroom, Lynn was lying on her side asleep, or at least pretending to be. I stood there for a while, watching her breathing to make sure she was really asleep. I had the feeling she might jump out at me the moment I got into bed, but she didn't. I climbed into bed and she didn't even move. Her breathing was soft and deep and I was starting to wonder if I'd dreamt the whole thing. The next morning, I waited for her to come down for coffee, and after handing her a mug and kissing her cheek, I decided to ask her about it. So, what was that about last night? I kept my tone light so I didn't offend or embarrass her. She frowned over a cup of coffee, shaking her head like she had no clue what I was referring to. You were peeking at me again, if from over there. I pointed to the spot on the floor by the kitchen island. She followed my gaze, and when she looked back at me, she burst out laughing. She laughed so hard that I couldn't help but join her. <laughs> you creep me the fuck out sometimes, you know that. She giggled and set her cup on the counter and wrapped her arms around my neck. You creep me out all the time, so I guess we're even. She teased. We said our goodbyes and left for work. As I drove, I kept thinking about how creepy it had been seeing her grinning at me from behind the island like that, and the sounds her hands made on the floor as she crawled away. I told myself she was just trying to be silly, just trying to join me in my love of all things horror. It's not like I was afraid of her, but it still didn't sit right with me. I started seeing her peeking at me more and more. Sometimes she'd be peeking out from behind the couch or living room curtains. Once she even managed to get inside her grandmother's old trunk that sits at the foot of our bed. I might not have even known she was there at all had the trunk's old hinges not given her away. She'd had the lid propped up just enough so only half of her face peeked through. She'd been grinning like an excited toddler. It was unnerving. I didn't even know what to say to her and all I could do was stare. And when I finally found my voice, I asked her why on earth she was doing this. She didn't answer, but she had slowly closed the lid, shutting herself inside the trunk. I just walked away feeling disturbed. I didn't understand why she was doing it, but clearly it made her happy. I just hoped she would tire of the game quickly. Lynn didn't peek at me for the next two weeks. I started to think she was done with her weird prank and I was relieved. 
Then we were watching a show on Netflix one night and I jokingly said that I hadn't seen her peeking at me lately and that she must have given up on her spy game. She looked up at me with a small smile and said, Maybe I've just gotten better at it. I didn't say anything, but I wondered whether or not she was joking. For the next few days, I couldn't stop thinking about what she'd said. I mean, was she still peeking at me when I wasn't looking and I just hadn't noticed? And if so, what the hell was she getting out of this? I started to feel paranoid, constantly checking whether she was watching from around a corner or from behind a door. I was jumpy whenever I was home and she wasn't in full view of me. I felt stupid and a little crazy. But after weeks without another incident, I began to relax. I stopped checking behind furniture and walls and told myself it was just a bad memory. Then, a few days ago, things got so much worse. Lynn had left to go to her friends, and I lounged on the couch and played a couple games on my laptop. Around 9pm, I hopped in the shower, and as I was washing the soap for my hair, I, I felt that awful feeling that I was being watched. I slowly opened my eyes and almost had a fucking heart attack. Lynn was peeking from behind the shower curtain. Her entire head stretched into the shower, leaving just her body outside. Her long, dark hair hung against the curtain, the ends dripping with water, and her mouth hung open in a terrible grin, eyes wide and red, as if she hadn't blinked in a while. I screamed and jumped back against the wall. She didn't move, nor did her smile waver. Her makeup ran down her cheeks in two black streaks, and she looked giddy and completely deranged. I was fucking terrified. We stood like that for a few moments, neither of us saying a word. And finally, after what felt like forever, she slowly pulled her head back out of the shower, and I watched her blurry figure through the curtain as she moved backwards towards the bathroom door. A second later, the bathroom door slammed shut, hard enough to rattle the mirror. I screamed again and jumped out of the shower to lock the door. I stayed inside the bathroom for over an hour. Maybe it was an overreaction to some of you, but joke or not, I wasn't going to put up with this crazy shit anymore. At least that's what I kept telling myself as I paced in my bathroom, stopping to listen at the door every few minutes. Suddenly, I heard a muffled sound and I pressed my ear against the bathroom door, straining to listen. I couldn't hear anything but I envisioned Lynn standing on the other side of the door, giggling at her joke. I felt a surge of anger. I mean, I was beyond pissed at being made to feel scared in my own house and made to hide in the bathroom for an hour. All for what? Some joke? I mean, if it was a joke, it was an awful one. What the fuck, Lynn? I snapped. This shit is getting really fucking annoying. I waited for her to apologize or to call me a jerk, but instead I heard a faint moan. So quiet, I wondered if I heard it at all. And then, complete silence. Lynn? I called out, not able to even hide the shakiness in my voice. I got no response, just my own heavy breathing. I swear to God, just fucking stop it! I yelled, pounding my fist on the door. I waited for her to cuss me out, something I would expect from me talking to her like that. I'd never screamed at her before. But there was nothing, just the occasional drip from the showerhead. Look, I won't deny that I was scared, too afraid to open the damn door and face my own wife. I waited for another 30 minutes or so, which feels like a fucking lifetime when you are scared. And finally, I decided I wasn't going to spend the night hiding in my bathroom, so I got down on my knees and peered under the door. 
I almost expected to see her face peeking back at me, but thankfully I didn't. I could see straight down the hallway to the top of the stairs, but no Lynn. I didn't know if I should be happy about that or not. I looked around for a few more minutes, waiting to see her head pop up over the top step, but it never came. I stood up, my hand hovering over the door, and mentally prepared myself to open it. I slowly turned the lock with shaky fingers, and was about to yank it open when I heard a sound that still makes me feel nauseous when I think about it. A moan, louder than before, but this time I was able to tell just where it was coming from. I turned my head to the closet door as if in slow motion, and locked eyes with my wife who was peeking out at me from the slight gap. Her eyes were still wide as ever, and her mouth was hanging open in the most grotesque gaping smile I'd ever seen. I didn't even scream. I was too scared for even that. Her hands were clasped to her chest, body trembling with sheer delight, as if she could barely contain her excitement. A short, raspy moan bubbled up from her throat, deep and raw, sending a shiver through my entire body. Somehow, I found the ability to pull the bathroom door open and ran as fast as I could all the way down the steps, snagging my keys and phone from the table in the living room before running outside to my car. I could hear her shrill laughter behind me, but I didn't hear her getting closer. I didn't bother shutting the front door. I drove away from the house faster than I illegally should have, shivering the entire time, either from fear or the cold, but maybe a little of both. I hadn't grabbed a coat or even a pair of shoes. I was still in my boxers and my hair was still damp. I drove straight to my brother Chris's house about 40 minutes away, ignoring any and every call and text I got. I didn't check my phone until I was safely parked in my brother's driveway. Lynn had called four times and sent a flurry of texts, all wondering where I'd gone and, and why I left like that. I threw my phone at the dash in a rage, furious at her nonchalant attitude. My brother and wife were surprised to see me, especially dressed in just a pair of boxers, but told me to stay as long as I needed. Chris lent me some clothes and asked me what happened. I told him Lynn and I had a fight, but didn't get into details. I, I didn't want him to think I was overreacting, leaving my wife over a prank, even if it was a strange one. I mean, hadn't I encouraged her for years to lighten up instead of being so serious all the time? I mean, I'd wanted her to relax and loosen up. This was definitely not what I had in mind. I tried to sleep on their sofa, but my brain wouldn't let me sleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw Lynn's face staring at me from inside the closet. Knowing she had been in there with me the entire time made my skin crawl. She'd never left the fucking bathroom at all. Instead, she slipped inside the closet and slammed the bathroom door shut to fool me. The mere thought of going back home gave me anxiety. I tossed and turned, unable to sleep. Chris ended up giving me a sleeping pill so I was able to get a little rest, but my sleep was filled with terrible dreams. All of Lynn's smiling face. I woke up just as the sun started to rise. My sore body ached from the sofa and I felt drained. I knew I'd have to call Lynn at some point, but I didn't know what to say to her. I wouldn't be going home unless she gave me her word she'd never do any more creepy shit. I just wanted my wife back. Her normal, serious self never looked so good to me. I was contemplating calling her and telling her that when that familiar feeling came over me. I was being watched. I was staring at the ceiling, my heart in my throat. I didn't want to look away, but the longer I ignored the feeling, the worse it got. 
my eyes drifted away from the ceiling almost on their own, and her face was pressed up against the window besides the couch, staring down at me with that same gaping smile. Drool dribbled down her lips, leaving two long streaks down the glass. I didn't know how long she'd been there, but something told me she'd been there quite a while, possibly all night. I didn't bother screaming, although I was afraid anger trumped any fear I felt at that moment. I jumped up from the couch and pounded my palm against the glass. Lynn, are you crazy? What the hell is wrong with you? Just go home! I shouted. Now! She didn't move, and her ghastly expression never changed. If anything, her smile only grew, as if she'd never been more elated. I could hear Chris and his wife moving around upstairs, and as if Lynn could hear them from her place outside, her head twitched slightly in their direction, and she began to close her mouth slowly. Chris called my name from upstairs, obviously concerned. I turned to see him and his wife Rebecca hurrying down the steps. When I turned back towards the window, Lynn was gone. The only sign she'd been there at all were the two streaks of drool still dripping down the glass. I tried explaining to Chris and Rebecca about waking up to see Lynn watching me through their window, but they were skeptical. Who wouldn't be? Chris and I went outside to the spot in front of the window, but there were no footprints in the dirt. Just a slight indent. Animal, probably, Chris guessed. And I didn't argue. He and Rebecca assumed I dreamed the entire episode, but they didn't understand, and I was too tired to explain it to them. I called out of work that day and turned my cell off. I didn't want to face Lynn. Just talking to her was too much for me at that point. I really started to believe something was irreversibly wrong with her. That no matter what promises she made, we'd never be the same again. The thought saddened me to my core, and I cried most of the morning. By noon, I figured I was ready to confront her, give her one last chance to explain herself. I could at least give her that after six years, I told myself. I turned my phone on and saw the dozens of texts she'd sent all from a seemingly concerned wife. Can we talk? I love you. Please call me. I'm really worried. Can you answer? Just come home. And more of the same. All texts telling me she loved me and she wanted me home. How worried she was. Not a damn one addressing the crazy shit she pulled. Like she hadn't been acting like a character from a Stephen King book. Even her texts were different. She normally texted novels just to tell me to pick up a loaf of bread. You'd think she'd have more to say to me after her bizarre shenanigans. Look, I know it probably seems childish to some of you who are miles away from this situation, but if you saw the way Lynn looked at me, how she scampered away on all fours like some wild animal, grinning at me from inside the closet like a lunatic, then I, I think you'd find my reaction was warranted. I ended up staying with Chris and Rebecca for another night, I didn't wake up yesterday until afternoon, and thankfully I didn't see Lynn's face watching me through the window. I don't want to pry because it's not my place, but is the fight something that can be mended? Rebecca asked. She'd made us both a sandwich for lunch, and I knew she wanted to breach the subject without seeming to be nosy. I don't know. I just... she's like a different person. I chose my words very carefully. I still wasn't ready for her or Chris to know the full extent of the batshit craziness I'd been dealing with. People change, Ben. But she's still the same woman you married. Maybe you both just need to talk through your issues. Whatever's going on, I'm sure it can be fixed. Rebecca was ever the peacemaker. I think it's beyond that now. I don't think talking would help. I just don't trust her. 
The words stung in my heart. I missed and loved my wife, but how could I live with someone like that? Living in constant fear didn't sound too appealing. Wynn loves you. She has to be absolutely crushed. Yeah, I don't know about that, I said. Well, she certainly seemed like it to me. I've never seen her so upset. Very much unlike the Lynn I know. Rebecca shook her head sadly. It took a full minute for her words to really sink in, and when they did, I felt dread warming its way through my skin. Wait, wh what do you mean? You saw her? You saw Lynn? My mouth was suddenly dry. Rebecca nodded casually as if the fact wasn't nightmare fuel. Maybe for her it wasn't. She stopped by this morning just after Chris left for work. She was cleaning the plates from the table. I didn't see her car, though. Maybe she took an Uber or something. Beck, what did she say? Did, did she come inside? Sweat started to break out on my forehead. I began looking around, examining corners as though a predator lurked behind them. No, she just asked if you were awake yet and I said that you weren't. I asked if she wanted me to wake you, but she said no. Just said to let you sleep. She continued washing the dishes. That's all. She didn't say anything else. No. She looked awful, though, like she hadn't slept in days. I think you should call her. I got up from the table and thanked Rebecca for lunch. I felt a little better at the knowledge that at least she hadn't come inside. Still, I needed to double-check that the doors were locked. I sat for a while trying to figure out what to do next. I didn't want to go home, but I felt like I owed it to Lynn to help her if I could. I, hadn't I sworn an oath to love and honor her through sickness and in health? I mean, clearly she was sick. If she was sick, which I, I truly believe she was, I, I had to try to get her the help she needed. But I didn't even know where to start. I didn't want to call the police, and besides, what the hell was I going to tell them? That my wife was peeking at me, that she was being creepy. As bizarre as she'd been, she still hadn't committed any crime. I mean, not yet, anyway. The police would have probably said that I was overreacting, but this wasn't some prank. It felt wrong. Dangerous, even. Like something sinister lurked beneath her smile. I knew as her husband I was well within my rights to have her committed, but what if she simply acted normal in their presence? She'd obviously been able to fool Rebecca into thinking she was just a concerned wife. As long as the doctors didn't find her a danger to herself or others, they'd have no choice but to release her after 72 hours. I felt lost and overwhelmed, so I did what any husband in my position would do. I called her mother. I didn't want to, believe me. I mean, her mother, Marianne, and I were never on the best of terms. Now, we'd never fought or anything like that, just she wasn't a very warm person and wasn't really easy to get along with. She hardly ever smiled, and when she did, only her lips would move into a thin-lipped smile, leaving her eyes as blank as before. She gave off this aura that felt like she was permanently on the offensive. I'd only met her twice, and both times were for such short visits. I got the impression she didn't approve of me for her daughter. Lynn always ushered us out quickly, and she didn't want me to feel uncomfortable, which I was grateful for. Being in her mother's company felt almost unbearable like walking on glass. So I was glad when we moved three states away so we didn't have to see her often. I was happy to avoid the woman, but I needed her help. I really didn't want to talk to her at all, but I had to talk to someone, and someone who knew Lynn better than I did. So I gripped my teeth and did what I had to. 
Yes? She answered, already sounding irritated. Hey, Marianne, it's me, Ben. Do you have a minute to talk? I could hear her cluck her tongue in irritation. I'm in the middle of writing some checks, but if you insist, I suppose I can spare a moment. What is it that you want to discuss, Benjamin? It's, uh, it's about Lynn. She's been acting strangely, and I was wondering if you had any idea whether there was uh, something... I was quickly interrupted. It's a bit difficult to follow your rambling, Benjamin. What is it that you want from me? I could almost see her standing there in her thin sweater and slacks, tapping her fingernails impatiently on the table. I wanted to know if you'd ever noticed any odd behavior or possibly any mental health issues. There was a long, uncomfortable pause that I couldn't tell was because she was just thinking or, or something else. Finally, after a few seconds, she spoke. I'm not sure if this is one of your jokes, Benjamin, but if so, I don't find the humor in it. Now, I do have business to attend to, as I've said, so if you don't mind... I cut her off before she could get rid of me. Marianne, it's not a joke. I'm sincerely concerned about Lynn's mental health. Her behavior has been very erratic lately. I'm very worried about her, and I figured as your mother, you would be as well. My frustration was evident in my voice. If you're truly concerned, then I suggest you get the health professionals involved. I don't know what you expect of me. She snapped. I could tell she was seconds away from hanging up, and for some reason I was desperate not to let her. I had the feeling that she knew a lot more than she was letting on. Please, if not for me, do it for Lynn. I heard a faint, shaky intake of breath, as if she were trying to hold her steely persona together but failing. Marianne, what's wrong? I started. Benjamin, I don't know what to tell you. My only advice would be to seek professional help. Do not call here again. Goodbye. I tried to call out to her, but she'd hung up. I tried to wrap my head around the call and refusal to help me. Even if she didn't like me, why wouldn't she want to help her own daughter? I couldn't understand that. I tried to replay the conversation, desperate to find something I missed. After a while, I almost gave up, until I remembered her last words to me. Seek professional help. If she'd said those words with a bit of urgency, I could have just been grasping at straws, but no, I was sure her voice had changed ever so slightly when she said that, as if those words were very important. What had she meant? I assumed she'd been referring to medical professionals, but maybe she was referring to someone else, someone that she didn't, for some reason, feel comfortable saying directly. Or maybe I was just desperate. I waited for Chris to get home, and after a very long and exhausting conversation with him and Rebecca, I convinced them that Lynn truly needed psychiatric help. I didn't tell them everything. I wasn't prepared to go into it yet, but I told them about our last encounter, how she'd hidden in the bathroom, peeking at me from the closet. They were obviously shocked, but thankfully they believed me. They too just wanted to help her. Still, they didn't think it was all that serious. Weird, maybe, but not dangerous. They kept saying that Lynn had to be playing some kind of weird joke. Maybe for YouTube? Rebecca offered, if only half-heartedly. Chris didn't think we should involve the police just yet. He offered instead to go with me, and I readily accepted. He reasoned that calmly talking to her and trying to coax her into going willingly was the best recourse. I agreed to do it his way. At least I wouldn't be going into that house alone. We drove over this morning, just after breakfast. I mean, there was no way I was going at night. When we pulled into the driveway, my stomach began doing somersaults. Her car wasn't there. 
but I still didn't let my guard down. The front door was ajar, and for a split second, I thought we'd see her eyes staring through the gap. I was shaking and starting to sweat. He waited for me to open the door, his hands in his pockets like he was going on a fucking stroll through the park. I envied his ignorance. I pushed the door open and was immediately hit with the stench of rot. Chris smelled it too, and he walked in the house behind me with his nose scrunched up. You guys used to clean the floor around here, shit. Yeah, shut up. My eyes darted around for any signs of Lynn. The house was deadly quiet and dark, despite being ten in the morning. All the curtains were closed up tight, refusing to allow any sunlight inside. If I hadn't left it just two days prior, I'd have thought the house to be abandoned. We moved through each room, carefully checking any place that she might hide, occasionally calling her name. Why the fuck are you looking under the couch? Aren't we looking for your wife? He was looking at me like I was a moron. Let's just go upstairs, I whispered. He shook his head but followed me up the stairs to check the bathroom and the spare bedroom. On the way up, my shoes crunched over pieces of glass that looked to be littered over a few of the steps. I noticed that one of Lynn and my wedding portraits that hung on the wall along the staircase had been smashed. The frame hung crookedly, all the glass removed. I stared at the picture, a lump forming in my throat. We had taken the photo just after leaving the church, after saying our vows. She looked so beautiful in her white gown. I looked at Lynn's beautiful face. I never dreamed her face would ever be a source of terror for me. We climbed the rest of the steps and checked the spare bedroom, but it looked completely untouched. I was hesitant to go into the bathroom, my fear from that night coming back to me all at once. Chris noticed and offered to go in by himself. I couldn't let him do that, so we walked in together, checking the closet in the shower. The bathroom looked as if it hadn't been touched since the night I left. I don't think she's here, Ben. Why don't you pack some clothes and we'll try coming back tomorrow or something? I nodded and went into our bedroom and shoved some clothes into a duffel bag. When I checked inside our closet, I came across the source of the smell and gagged. Chris took one look and lost all the color in his face. He had to go stand by the stairs to get away from the sight and smell. I gazed down in shock at what lay inside my bedroom closet. Soaking into the rug were at least a dozen eyeballs, all carefully laid out in pairs. Some were as large as a quarter, while others were as tiny as a marble. I stared down at the eyes she'd collected from small animals, and I wondered how she'd gotten them, and shuddered at the thought. Man, I thought I had it bad with Becca's shoe addiction, but fuck me. Your wife's in here collecting eyeballs. Chris gagged. Ben, oh, I think we should go. He called from the hall. I'm getting nauseous. All right. I grabbed my duffel and shut the closet door on my new nightmare. I stepped out into the hall and took a deep breath of air. I could taste the rot on my tongue, and I couldn't help but gag. Who the fuck lines up eyeballs in their closet like that? Chris mumbled. I tried to tell you she needed help, I said. She doesn't need help, Ben. She needs a fucking exorcist, he said. You coming or what? I can't stand the smell any... His words died in his throat, and his eyes grew wide with fear. I didn't ask him why. I could feel it. Someone was watching me, and I didn't think it was the eyes in the closet. I turned around, my eyes slowly scanning the bedroom. Christ, 
I whispered as I finally saw what we'd missed. Under the bed, curled on her side, watching us with the excitement of a kid on Christmas morning, was my wife. She held her hands together just under her chin, and they were shaking eagerly. Now that she'd been found, I could hear the quiet noises she was making, a sort of hiccuping sound in her throat, as if the excitement was just too much for her. It was unnerving to say the least. Wide eyes and that same huge smile. Everything in me told me to run, but I forced it away. I mean, this was my wife. No matter how twisted, she was still the woman I married. I had to help her. Lynn, I said softly. She didn't respond, but her head bobbed back and forth in two quick little movements as if she were nodding. Baby, I just want to help, okay? Can you, uh, can you let me do that? I asked. I had taken a single step forward, approaching her like some kind of dangerous animal. I love you, Lynn, I said softly. I took another step closer. She let a tiny moan escape her wide open mouth and I had to resist the urge to run. Her shoulders were starting to quiver, and her eyes grew as large as saucers. I crouched down so I could see her better, and immediately saw the blood. Her hands were covered in it. They trembled more the closer I got, as if she were barely able to contain herself. Lynn, are you hurt? Are you bleeding? I said. She bobbed her head again, her bloody fingers moving up and down as if playing an invisible piano. They occasionally grazed her chin, leaving smears of blood on her skin. I wanted to recoil in disgust. The smell that was coming off of her was revolting. I could feel the vomit trying to climb in my throat. Her lips were dry and stretched thin, blood seeping between the cracks. I knew she wouldn't come out on her own, but I didn't want to leave her in the state she was in. I scooted closer and reached out to her. The excited hiccuping sounds got louder and her hands shook, fingers flexing. It was then that I could see the blood oozing from in between her fingers. My god, Lynn, you're bleeding, I said. Instinctively, I reached out to take her hand, but before I could even touch her, her hand sprang out towards me. A sharp pain shot through my arm, and I fell back on my ass. My arm burned, and I could see blood dripping down the carpet. I looked back at her in shock and saw her grinning madly, her fingers clutching a large shard of glass. You alright in there? Chris asked from behind me. I turned my head slightly and nodded to him, cradling my arm to my chest. When I turned back to face Lynn, I saw that her focus had shifted. She wasn't looking at me anymore, and she wasn't smiling anymore either. She was staring past me, her eyes glaring at Chris, the way a hungry lion might stare at an antelope. Her mouth was still hanging open, but it was twisted into a snarl. I got to my feet and began walking backwards down the hall, afraid to take my eyes off her. Are you bleeding? The moment the words left his mouth, Lynn started fast scooting out from under the bed, the glass shard still in her fist. Chris, run! Go! I yelled. But he must have been too afraid to move because a second later I felt my back bump into him. He was still standing at the top of the stairs, staring at the horror that was my wife. Lynn had crawled completely out from under her bed and stood in the bedroom doorway, her face twisted in rage. Her whole body was visibly tense. Blood ran down her fingers and onto the floor. Jesus, Lynn. You, uh, playing hide-and-seek? I reached back and pushed him towards the steps. Move your ass, Chris! I said as quietly but firmly as I could. 
Lin bobbed her head in fast, sharp motions and began to grin, stretching her mouth open wider and wider so that her chin seemed to touch her chest. I heard Chris mutter a prayer, and then he was running down the stairs. I stood at the top of the stairs, stuck between the love for a woman who clearly needed serious help and self-preservation. I only want to help. I was choking back tears. Her eyes focused on me once again as she slowly lifted the glass, holding it out in front of her. And then, she started sprinting towards me, grinning with utter excitement. Thankfully, my body took over and I flew down the stairs, skipping two or three at a time. I made it to the front door before I felt her leap onto my back, wrapping her arms around my neck, her open mouth next to my ear so that I could hear those terrible hiccuping sounds up close. I shook her off of me, knocking her to the floor. I felt a searing pain in my back as she went, but I tore open the front door and bolted to my car. Chris was standing in the front yard, talking on the phone with the police. I didn't say a word. I just ran to my car and jumped in. Chris took the hint and followed me, still on the line with 911. I watched the rearview mirror, sure I'd see her there, running after us. I never did. I went straight to the ER and got 11 stitches in my arm and 3 on my back. Police asked a lot of questions and went back to the house to do a search, but of course, Lynn wasn't there. They advised me to stay with a friend or relative for a while, and to file a restraining order as soon as I could. But none of those things would matter. Somehow, I just knew. I dropped Chris off at home and went to a motel an hour away. I wanted to put as much distance between me and Lynn as I could. And this is where I've been for the last four hours. I thought maybe the police would find her. Maybe they'd get her the help she desperately needs. But now I don't think so, because 40 minutes ago I got a text from an unknown number, just three words. I found you. And a picture attached. The picture was dark and grainy, but I instantly knew what it was. There was no mistaking my wife's eye. I don't know what to do. I'm alone and scared. And I can't help feel that I'm being watched. After that one, you might want to keep an eye out on your partner. You never know where they might be peeking at you from. Ben almost became another statistic there, and by the sounds of it, he still might be turned into some sort of true crime story. Now if you're a fan of true crime, the Generation Y podcast becomes essential listening. Having started all the way back in 2012, hosts Aaron and Justin dissect some of the craziest and most notable murders, crimes, and conspiracy theories together. And 10 years later, they're still at it, unraveling a new case each week taking on infamous cases like the Evil Genius Bank robbery, the Zodiac Killer, and the Tylenol murders. And if you've ever wondered why your Tylenol has that protective safety seal on it, the Tylenol murders episode will tell you everything you need to know about that. Now it's not just all the well-known cases either, they cover lesser known crimes as well, like the case of Kimberly Rico, the Valentine murder, where Kim takes her husband on a romantic weekend that includes a murder mystery play that she uses as a cover to murder him for the insurance money. It's always the spouse, right? Aaron and Justin go over every angle, breaking down theories, diving deep into forensic evidence, and interviewing those close to the case. It feels like you're sitting right there as they tell you the story, and for me it really is essential listening, because of the wide range of cases covered and how the episodes are approached and dissected. Each episode really draws you in and keeps you coming back for more. 
So follow the Generation Y podcast on Amazon Music or listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus on Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Now, at some point, we all experience the loss of loved ones, as we do in our next tale from author R.M. Staniforth, featuring performances by Sarah Thomas, John Patnode, Benet Nariani, and Melissa Medina. But sometimes, that loss may not be what it seems. I took a deep breath to stop the slight shaking in my hand, whispering my affirmation on the exhale. I'm ready for this. I'm ready before sliding the blue line notebook paper out from its envelope. I was finally ready to read my dad's suicide note. It took me almost two years to get to this point of acceptance and readiness. Two years ago, I was known as a bright, energetic girl who was ready to take on the world. Having just finished high school as the class valedictorian, I was following in my father's footsteps and received a full ride scholarship to his alma mater, where I would also compete nationally on the women's track team. All of this was possible thanks to the support of my favorite person in the world, my dad. Growing up, as far back as I can possibly remember, it was just me and dad. He had told me that my mother had given in to her drug addictions and walked out when I was still an infant. He always told me I looked just like her, which I can verify by the pictures he showed me. That being said, he never was able to find her. Nobody knows if she's even alive. My dad didn't hesitate to be the perfect dad, regardless of losing my mother. Remember, we're a team. He always told me. Together, there's nothing that we can't handle. And that was true. Every day, he'd take me to school and head straight to work, just to come home and shuttle me to all of my extracurriculars, and still make time to help me do my homework and study. Okay, so sometimes he forced me to do my homework, but it always got done before bed. Dad was genuinely my best friend. Our bond was something most other girls just couldn't understand as they constantly fought and argued with their fathers. Not me though, we were a team. There was nothing that we couldn't handle. That is, until there was no we anymore. That weekend, we spent all Saturday moving my things into my college dorm. I remember that day like it was yesterday. We talked and laughed all day as we unpacked and set up furniture together. We could only avoid the inevitable for so long though, as night fell and dad still had a three hour drive home. Finally, we both broke into tears as we said our goodbyes. He was choking back his tears. Together, there's nothing we can't handle. I finished for him. And with that, he climbed into his pickup and drove off. I cried myself to sleep, thinking about how I had never gone more than a day without seeing my dad. And now I was supposed to live on my own? I woke up early the next day, still wearing my jeans from moving day. Realizing that I hadn't stayed up to get the text from my dad ensuring he made it home safely, I picked up my phone to check for his text, but naturally the battery was dead. I connected the charger and got the coffee pot started while I waited for my phone to charge. By the time I got back to my bedroom, the phone had enough juice to turn on. I put in my passcode and went straight to the messaging app, but 
there was no message from dad. I immediately had a bad feeling about that. It seemed so unlike him to not send the message when he got home. My mind started jumping to all of the what ifs. What if he had been in an accident? What if he was in the hospital or worse? I called, hoping he would pick up the phone and calm my anxiety. But the call went straight to his cheery but sarcastic voicemail he hadn't changed in years. This is Darren. Sorry I missed your call. Leave me a message and I'll probably call you back. But no guarantees. Hey dad, this is Aaron. Sorry, I fell asleep. I just wanted to know you got home okay. Call me. Love you. I'm sure he just fell asleep and hasn't gotten up yet. I told myself aloud. I continued to try and reassure myself that nothing was wrong, but it didn't help. I couldn't squash that feeling that something was wrong. An hour passed, then two, then three. I must have called at least a dozen times, but every call had the same result, straight to voicemail. By the time it was noon, I knew something had to be wrong, very wrong. If my dad slept until 7.30 a.m., that was sleeping in for him, even on a Sunday. I did the next thing I could think of and called my Uncle Dan, who lived only 25 minutes away. Hey, Uncle Dan, sorry to bother you, but have you heard from my dad? He never called to say he was home last night, and, well, he hasn't answered his phone. No, I'm sure he's fine. He's probably just sleeping in. He's an empty nester now. Or maybe he's just working on that old Camaro. <laughs> maybe he'll finally get it running. Dan said with a chuckle. Look, I was pacing my room, somewhat annoyed by his lack of concern. Can you please just do me a favor and go check on him? Well, I'd love to, but I'm at the lake right now having myself a nice, quiet fishing trip. Uh, but tell you what, if you haven't heard from him by later this afternoon, I'll stop by on my way home and smack him for you. All right, thanks, Dan. I said before hanging up, not even trying to hide my disappointment. I couldn't understand how Dan could just blow off the fact that Dad hadn't called me. I knew my dad better than anybody, and this wasn't normal. I called the highway patrol next and asked them if there had been any accidents involving a 2006 Chevy Silverado. Thankfully, there had been none. After that, I called the police for my dad's city, asking them to file a missing persons report or do a wellness check. They blew me off the same way my uncle Dan did, telling me that he's an adult and has no obligation to check in with his teenage daughter and recommended that I wait a couple of days. By 2 p.m., still with no phone call and nobody that would take me seriously, I grabbed my keys to my dainty maroon sedan and started driving. I drove fast. I couldn't help it. But I made it home in just two and a half hours, cutting 30 minutes off the usual three-hour drive. I felt my heart speed up and hit a little harder as I pulled into my neighborhood, anxious to get some answers. As the garage door opened, I could see the Chevy Silverado in the garage, next to the rusty old Camaro with parts and tools scattered about. Feeling a little relieved, I took a deep breath in and let my chest push the air back out. Dad? I called out as I walked through the door. His keys, wallet, and cell phone all lay in the old beat-up brown shelf next to the door. Dad, are you home? 
there was still no answer as I peeked out into the backyard. It seemed as though the home I'd known my whole life had never been so quiet. It was usually filled with the sounds of conversations, laughter, music, or the sounds of sports playing in the living room. Tonight, however, the silence of the house was so muted that each stair creak sounded like the house was moaning in pain, as if it was being forced to tell a dark secret. Dad? I called out, a little softer this time, scared to disturb the leering silence. I gave his bedroom door a soft knock, then twisted the doorknob and pushed lightly, encouraging it slowly to open with a drawn-out, squealing creak. That's where I found him. The first thing I noticed was the blood. The headboard of his bed had a deep red, almost black in the middle, spatter of blood. It looked as if someone had filled a large water balloon with blood and launched it at the headboard. The splatters of blood projected upwards from the headboard, leaving long streaks of blood up the wall and even onto the ceiling. Laying on the bed was my father, thankfully slumped in a way that I couldn't see his head and face. Next to him, I could see the deep brown woodstock of his 12-gauge shotgun. This is an image I can't get out of my mind. The harder I try to not think about it, the more I think about it. It haunts me, every day and every night. I frequently have nightmares where I watch a dark figure place a shotgun to my dad's head and pull the trigger, sending blood and brain matter flying throughout the room. I always try to stop it from happening, but I'm unable to move. That evening, I experienced what shock truly is. It's as if the part of my mind that controls how rational people should act simply broke. I know I called 911. I know I told them someone was dead, but I barely remember anything else from the ensuing events until the funeral. And the time the detective told me that my father's death had been ruled a suicide. Detective Tilly was her name. I always kept her card in my nightstand. She handed me a Ziploc bag. Inside was an off-white envelope that was once sealed but had been carefully opened. On the outside, written in black ink, was my name. It's addressed to you, Detective Tilly said. We had to process it for evidence, but the case is closed and this belongs to you. The next thing she handed me was her card, with a soft touch on my shoulder and a promise that I could call any time, under any circumstance. Over the following 18 months, my life can only be described as an absolute mess. I was hospitalized twice, not for physical injuries, but psychiatric ones. I would simply forget to eat and ended up severely underweight. Another time, I was apparently found by police walking down the highway at night, barefoot, wearing only shorts and a t-shirt. I don't remember that, but needless to say, I did not end up following through with college. When I wasn't an inpatient, I stayed with my Uncle Dan and Aunt Molly, who kindly took me in and handled basically all of the affairs. Over the past six months, Thanks to the help of Uncle Dan, Aunt Molly, my psychiatrist, 
and my therapist, I've made progress enough to finally start feeling like a normal person again. I'd been weaned to low dosages of the pills that helped me sleep. And my therapist and I decided that I was finally in a place where I could and should read the suicide letter addressed to me. Erin, I want you to know that I'm sorry and that none of this is your fault. Ever since your mother's death, the only thing that brought me happiness was being your dad. Now that you are off on your own, I don't feel as if I have any reason to live. I love you, Dad. I paused, staring at the words, letting them sink in. My fist slammed on the desk before I even realized I was angry, knocking my pinholder over. I grabbed the pinholder and threw it across the room. I heard it crack on the wall, followed by pins and pencils landing in every direction. What the fuck? My sight blurred slightly from accumulating tears. This letter was supposed to provide me with closure, not more questions. What did he mean by my mother's death? My father had always told me that she left, and he didn't know what happened to her after that. And why is it that he couldn't continue to be my dad after I left college? I took a deep breath in through my nose and pushed the air out through my lips. I took a couple more deep breaths until I could compose myself. I started picking up the pens that I'd thrown everywhere. They were all blue-capped ballpoint pens, the only pens I would write with. That habit was one of the many I picked up from my dad. That's when the oddity of the note struck me, something I hadn't thought of until now. The note was written in black pen. My dad only ever wrote with blue pens, as if he had some sort of phobia with using any other ink. I rushed back to the note and looked at it more intently. The black ink on the paper didn't seem right, and not just the color, but the lettering as well. I rushed to the closet and pulled out the old orange shoebox that contained every card my dad had ever left me. On top was the card he had given me along with my graduation gift. On the top front, written in blue ink, was my name. I placed it next to the suicide note written with black ink. It was different. The handwriting was close, but different. My dad wrote the E in Aaron with straight lines and sharp points on the graduation card. But on the suicide note, the back of the E was curved. There were other small differences as well, such as how on the note, the handwriting was slightly more slanted than on the cards my dad had given me. Over the next few hours, I pulled out every single card and analyzed the handwriting, comparing it with the suicide note. The more I read, the more I became convinced that the suicide letter was written by someone else. But who? Was my dad murdered? I approached Dan as soon as he got home, holding the letter in my hand. Dan? Um, there's something that I'd like to talk to you about, I said, standing in the doorway of his office with my free hand anxiously pulling at my hair. What can I do you for, Aaron? Dan replied with a smile but still looking down at his computer. My dad's suicide note. I read it. It says here that my mother died, but my dad said that she left and he never knew what happened to her. I'm, I'm just confused. For a moment, 
just a small moment, a look of surprise came over Dan's face, as if he'd been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Just as quickly as it appeared, that expression left and was replaced with a kind, caring look. I'm sorry, honey. I, I don't know much about your mother. only met her a few times myself. He paused for a minute to remove his reading glasses and set them on his desk. I'm sorry to say this, but I think it's also fair to say that there were a lot of things your dad kept to himself. I wish he'd opened up about his struggles. We all do. Okay. I'm sorry to bother you. I started to walk away. Hey, hey, don't, don't leave yet. Is there anything else that's bothering you? Well, the thing is, I... I just... I trailed off and looked down at the ground. I didn't know how to say it. That I thought my dad was murdered. I started doubting myself and was worried that, after all of the problems I've had, that I might just sound crazy. It's okay, Aaron. You can tell me. I don't think my dad wrote the note. It's not his handwriting. It doesn't match. I spat out. Aaron. He sounded clearly disappointed. I thought we had all this behind us. Did you take your meds today? Yes, I took. I'll call Dr. Z first thing tomorrow. We don't need you to have another mental break. I'm sure the therapist can get you in for an emergency session as well. He scribbled down some notes on his post-it stack. You know what? You're right. I'm overthinking this all. I'm just gonna go get some rest. I didn't wait for a response. I turned and hurried into my room, closing and locking the door behind me. Deep breaths, I thought to myself. Deep breaths. I took a few moments to compose myself before sitting on my chair. I unclenched my hand, letting the old post-it note that I had swiped off Dan's desk fall onto mine. The note said, Pick up prescription for Aaron. The E was written with a curved backline. I placed it next to the alleged suicide note. The handwriting from Dan's post-it note was a dead match. Dan wrote this suicide note, not my dad. Hours passed while I sat at my desk, staring at the notes, grasping the new reality of the situation. A dozen thoughts crossed through my mind as to what might have happened, what role Dan had played in my father's death. Molly had knocked on the door and tried to coax me out for dinner. I declined, saying that I needed some rest. My therapist called too. Undoubtedly, he had received a call from Dan. I ignored his call, thinking Dan was trying to make me think I'm crazy. What are you hiding, Dan? I asked myself. It was 11 p.m., and I was sure Dan and Molly had gone off to bed. I pulled out the old business card that I had kept for the last two years. On the top, in blue handwriting, the card read, Tamantha Tilly, Detective. I pulled out my cell phone and dialed the number, hoping that she would pick up. Listening to the tone, I couldn't help but think about the day two years ago, trying to call my dad, not knowing he was already dead, laying on his bed with his brain splattered across the wall. This is Detective Tilly. The voice startled me. I had been so lost in that horrific memory that I forgot about the present. Hello, is anybody there? Detective Tilly asked from the other end of the line. Yeah, sorry. My name is Aaron Mills. Two years ago, you worked my dad's case. Darren Mills? 
Uh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah. Her voice was kind, with a hint of sadness. Some cases are hard to forget. Well, I'm a little freaked out. I felt comforted by the openness of Detective Tilly's warmth. The thing is, I started to pace the floor, not really sure how to say it. Go ahead, Erin. What can I do for you? Detective Tilly encouraged. I know it's been two years, and I know this probably sounds crazy, but I've just read my father's suicide note, and it's not his handwriting. He didn't write it. There was a pause of silence from the other end of the line. Are you sure? Detective Tilly asked. Yes, and I've compared it to my uncle's handwriting, and it looks exactly like his. I know how this sounds, but... Uh, I believe you, Detective Tilly said before I could finish. Look, if you're right about this, we need to get ahead of the situation now. Where are you? I can come pick you up. Bring the note and your uncle's handwriting sample, and we'll look at this together, okay? It felt so good to hear her say that she believed me. It had been so long since somebody truly believed in me instead of treating me like some sort of head case. I gave her my address and was already grabbing some clothes from my closet with my free hand. But I'll probably have to sneak out. This is my Uncle Dan's house, and when I said something to him about the note, he got really weird. Oh shit, Aaron, you need to get out of there. I'm already on my way. Keep me on the line. Get out of that house. Walk down the street, then start talking to me, and I'll pick you up. Okay, I said. I'll talk to you in a few. I slipped the phone in my pocket, with Detective Tilly still on the line. I quietly put my shoes on and grabbed a backpack with my computer, phone charger, and a set of spare clothes, along with the folder containing the suicide note, writing samples from my dad, and the post-it note from Dan, before quietly opening the door and stepping out. Going somewhere? I jumped a mile at the sound of Dan's voice and almost fell over while my heart punched my chest from the inside. Dan, hey, I said trying and failing to hide the obvious fact that I was caught red-handed by the man that may have murdered my dad. I... I was just going for a walk. With your backpack? Dan took a step forward. I took a step backward at the same time. Yeah, just in case I get hot and need to take my jacket off. Dan took another step forward, and I took another step back to keep out of arm's reach. Look, we just want to keep you safe. You've made so much progress. We don't need another regression. Why don't you hand over the note so we can get past this? His suggestion sounded more like a demand, and it occurred to me that he had probably been listening to my conversation with Tilly. He took another step forward, and I took another step backward. No, I said. It's mine, and it belongs to me. You know, you should remember who took you in and put up with all your psychotic breaks before you go making crazy accusations about the people who care for you. His usually cheerful voice now sounded dangerous and sharp, and he took another step forward. I realized that I was all but cornered. He stood between me and the door. Give it to me now, he demanded, no longer able to maintain the Mr. Nice Guy facade. He lunged at me. I turned to run, but his hand caught my backpack, ripping me backward. I landed hard on the floor, smacking my head on my chair on the way down. Get off me! I started kicking my feet at him. He ripped the backpack away, but I held onto it with both hands on the straps. He pulled again, 
even harder, and the seam in the strap started to rip. I remembered what my dad had taught me. If you were ever to be attacked by an evil man, to kick him in the groin. I summoned all of my strength and kicked as hard as I possibly could, placing my lower shin right between Dan's legs. He let go of the backpack and fell to his knees, while I fell backward toward the window. You stupid bitch! He started to stand up. I was already pushing the screen out of the window, and just as he rose back to his feet, I jumped out of the window, landing in the bushes four feet below. I scrambled to my feet while wiping the blood away from the cut on my forehead, created by my collision with the chair. I heard a thud behind me and turned to see that Dan had already made it through the window. All I could do now was run. I made it about 10 feet away before something hard hit my head. My vision flashed, and the next thing I knew, I was on the ground with Dan standing over me, a large rock in his hand. Drop the rock or I'll shoot! I looked up to see Detective Tilly standing 20 feet away, her pistol drawn and pointed right at Uncle Dan. Look, this is just a big misunderstanding. He said desperately while dropping the rock. Put your hands on your head and get on your knees! Officer Tilly walked forward, pistol still drawn. Dan dropped to his knees while I began to crawl away. Now lay down on your stomach! She carefully navigated behind him. She's having a psychotic break. She needs help! Dan pleaded, but Tilly ignored him. Instead, she grabbed his head and slammed him into the ground, face first, and proceeded to put him in handcuffs while multiple other police cars arrived. A lot happened in the next few weeks. I spent a couple days in the hospital, being treated for a serious concussion. Detective Tilly stopped in multiple times to check in on me and keep me updated. The following day, she had the case reopened to be investigated as a homicide, with the suicide note being a key piece of evidence. Dan was arrested that night for assault. Detective Tilly had heard the entire thing over the phone and witnessed him hit me in the head with the rock. When questioned about the homicide, however, he refused to talk and lawyered up. Instead, they turned to interrogate Aunt Molly. It took her less than an hour to crack and confess to everything. As it turns out, it wasn't just my mom who was into drugs. They all were. Aunt Molly, Uncle Dan, even my dad. One night, when I was just an infant, things got out of hand while they were using, and my mother overdosed. They didn't want to go to the police because they would all go to jail, and guardianship of me would have been given to the state. Instead, my dad and Dan disposed of her body and played it off as if she had walked out on us. They all got clean after that, and my dad made it his goal to be the best dad he could be. The night my dad died, my dad admitted to Dan that he couldn't hold on to the secret anymore. Now that I was an adult, he planned to confess to the authorities what had happened 18 years ago. This didn't sit well with Dan, so Dan killed him and made it look like a suicide to keep Molly and himself out of prison. It was a lot to grasp. But ultimately, I feel much better finally understanding the truth. I've forgiven my dad, and I can finally move on with my life and continue to college. I know that, even though he's gone, dad will always be with me. After all, we're a team, and together, there's nothing we can't handle.
We applaud Erin for trusting her gut and asking the right questions in that one. And how about Detective Tilly being open to hearing her out? We love to see it. But not everyone is so authentic as those two are, as you'll see in our final tale from Reddit author Darkly Gathers. And with performances by Stephen Brink, Nicole Goodnight, MJ Bradford, and Danuta Marie, we can quickly come to the conclusion that something seems just a little off. My mother calls up to me from downstairs. I take my rightmost headphone off my ear and I pick up the sound of the general bustle in the downstairs hallway. I can hear my dad and my sister laughing to each other as coats are taken from the rack. Bye! I call back, keeping my eyes fixed on the screen. The game goes on. Are you sure you don't want to come? My mom calls up. It could be fun! A fun family outing! I roll my eyes. I'm good, Mom! Bye! My sister calls up, too. Come on, Eddie. Don't sit around in the house like a loser all day. Goodbye! I shout down again. All right. See you soon. My mom replies. Later, loser. It's good-natured, really. We do get on. I can hear mom gently chiding her, though I can't make out the words. I sure do recognize that tone, though. Their voices fade out and the footsteps soften. The front door is drawn closed. I hear the sound of my mom locking up the door behind her. Awesome. Some peace at last. Don't have to worry about anyone barging in and interrupting. I return my headphone to my ear and reinvest my full attention to the matter at hand. Securing a victory. Gotta keep my current ranking, second loss in a row, and my score will tank. Can't afford that right now. Click, click, click. I tap away at the keys. Explosions rattle in my ears as I navigate the environment. Fully engrossed, muscles tensed as I do my best, at last bring the round to a close. I clap my hands in victory and lean back, the chair squeaking as I do so. I slide my headphones and take a moment to revel in the victory, listening to the soft patter of rain against the window. The day is gray and overcast. Wind sighs gently in the trees on the street outside. I glance at the clock. Damn, it's been almost an hour already. Oh, time flies. I spin around in my chair, drumming my fingers against the desk. I catch a quick reflection of myself in the screen as it loads. Sat at my computer, just like you probably are now, or maybe on your phone. Same difference. Connected, engaged, and yet, for now, alone. The rain patters, and the game freezes. The loading circle becomes stuck mid-turn. I try to shake the mouse, but that too has become frozen. <sighs> Fuck's sake. Tapping the escape key. Nothing. Hmm. It's as I'm going for Control-Alt-Delete that I hear a noise from downstairs. Sounded like a cupboard door being shut. Instantly, I find myself suppressing a wave of panic. It's fascinating, really, how quickly one's level of alertness can change. All my senses are primed, and I become hyper-aware of the sound of my breathing, of the beating of my heart. Maybe it was imagination? Maybe the sound was something else? Did it come from outside? But as I listen, it comes again. Another cupboard. And then, what sounds like the fridge. It's okay. Don't panic. Don't panic. Serial killers don't go looking through the cupboards and fridges, do they? I creep to my door and slowly... Gently, steadily, ease it open. 
slipping out into the corridor and tiptoeing to the banisters of the stairs, listening out for some more clues. I hold my breath, and then, as I hear water start flowing into the sink, I allow myself to relax a little. Killers don't wash their hands before a murder. <laughs> what would be the point? I'm summoning the courage to call down when I hear a voice call up first. All my tensions are relaxed at once, as the voice is my sister's. Oh, great! Uh, did you stop at the cookie place on your way back? Please tell me you got the caramel ones. There is a pause. Come down and see. I hear stuff being moved about on the counter. All right, give me a sec. I head back into my room to force restart my computer. I take another look at the clock. Hmm, I think to myself. They haven't been out very long. Wonder why they came back. Maybe the rain? I press and hold down the power button, then return through my door to the top of the stairs. How come you guys are back so early? I call out. There is no response. The door to my parents' room is open. I glance through it to see the rain wash gently down the window at the room's far side. For some reason unknown to me at this stage, unease creeps quietly into the back of my head. Luis? still hesitating by the banisters. Where's mom and dad? There was another silence. I walked the length of the hallway, passing by a little window to the street outside. My parents' car, it would seem, has not returned. I continue on until I'm stood at the top of the stairs, looking down them and into the hallway below. The lights are all switched off, and an unsettling aura seeps up the steps from the shadows beneath. My sister's voice comes from somewhere unseen. The kitchen, I think. Come see what I have for you. I cannot hear the sound of the cupboards now. There's no rustling, no movement of any objects or bags or jingling of keys. My sister finishes speaking, and then there is silence. Silence. And the gentle patter of rain. My hands... I realize, are sweating. What the hell is this? I think to myself, Eddie, come on, man, just hold yourself together. But something compels me to remain where I stand. Some unseen force keeps me from taking a step down onto the stairs and descending to the bottom floor. Luis? I try to call back, but my voice fails me. It does not project the way I intended. I clear my throat, though my mouth is dried. The sensation is an uncomfortable one. Eddie, Eddie, come downstairs. When did you get back? I managed to call down. Where's the car? Silence. Luis? I called down again, unsure of what else to say. And then, a moment later, from around the corner, my sister walks slowly and deliberately into view. She stops at the bottom of the stairs, still shrouded in shadow, and she looks up to me. We hold each other's gaze for a moment, her at the base of the steps and I at the top. She does not speak, and her expression shifts to a wide grin. Her teeth appear very white in the darkness. She makes a quick motion with one of her hands. Follow is the implication. And then she turns and walks slowly back into the kitchen, out of sight. It's not until I cannot see her that her voice comes again. Come on, Eddie. 
show you. The hairs on the back of my neck all raise in cold alarm. I do not follow. With my jaw clenched and blood frozen in my veins, I make a hasty retreat to my room where I close the door shut, perhaps just a little too quickly. The thud of the door going into its frame reverberates around the walls. Less than one second later, in the exact same instant, I hear the unmistakable sound of something barreling up the stairs, knocking carelessly into the banisters with rapid ascending creaks and clamoring. I cry out loud in terror with a surge of adrenaline. I grab hold of my chest of drawers. I haul it across the floor into place, blocking the door. My potted plant falls and lands with a dull thump by my feet, soil spilling out across the carpet. My heart hammers in my chest as I stare at the door, tensed and waiting for the handle to start rattling, waiting for something to throw itself against the door from the opposite side. My sister? But none of those things happen. The minutes tick by, excruciatingly slowly. The sounds of the sudden race up the stairs ended as quickly as they began, and with the utmost caution, I tentatively press my ear against the wood, listening, breathing deep, straining to hear for any sign or clue as to what the fuck is going on. Open the door, Eddie. My sister's voice whispers from the other side. I leap back from the door in horror, fumbling around on my desk for my phone, too afraid to look away. I grab it and tap in the passcode, my shaking fingers failing the password the first time. And the second. The thing on the other side of the door does not knock. It does not try to force its way in. It only repeats itself. Eddie, stop screwing around. Open the door and let me in. I have something to show you. I try to call my mom first. I bring up the phone to my ear, shaking. The line is engaged. Fuck! Come on, Eddie. Open the door. I want to show you something. Louise! My voice trembling. You're freaking me the fuck out! If this is a prank, just stop! Okay? Just stop! Open the door, Eddie. Open up and let me in. You need to see this, but please, come with me. Please, if it's a prank, I forgive you. Just stop messing with me! Silence. And then? Just come downstairs. You need to come downstairs with me. Just follow. Screw this. Next up, I call the police. An overreaction, perhaps, but better safe than sorry. The tone sounds through the phone, there's a click, and then... 911, what's your emergency? I take a deep breath. Hello? 911? Comes through the phone. There's an intruder in my house. I whisper at last as quietly as I can. Though evidently my sister has ears. Her voice is risen in pitch, and I don't think she likes this development. Eddie, you need to open the door. Let me in. You need to open the door. You need to open the door. Let me in. This is really important. Really important. Something about the way she says those final words sets my teeth on edge. It wasn't slurred as such, just... I don't know how to describe it. As if the muscles for her speech, I guess, were getting tired. But despite my fear, I do my best to ignore her. 
and I provide my details to the person on the line. The rain starts hammering down against the glass, and the wind picks up, too. Okay, sir. Comes the response after I've given my location. A car will be with you shortly. Please stay on the line. I do so, keeping as far away from my bedroom door as I can, terrified that at any moment the person with my sister's voice is going to barge through. Eddie? She shouts, making me jump. Eddie, you need to let me in. You need to come with me. I swear that I hear a car drive past outside, and I turn to look through the rain-washed window. And as I do so, my heart nearly stops in my chest. Down there, at the side of the road, standing in the rain and looking up into my window, right at me, is my family. My mom, my dad, and Luis. Just standing in a line, hands by their sides, staring up at me, staring up into my window. And they're all smiling, all grinning that same chilling grin, looking up at me, unblinking. The police arrived about 10 minutes after that, and they had a hell of a time calming me down. I never heard my sister leave from behind the doorway. Though the officers didn't find anyone, even after a thorough search of the house, my family outside vanished after I briefly turned away. One minute they were there, and the next, gone. My mother, my real mother, God hopes, nearly had a panic attack of her own when she came home to find cop cars parked outside. Luis had no idea what the hell I was talking about. None of them did, and she insisted she wasn't playing any kind of prank. She can be annoying at times, but still, I really can't see her doing anything like this. I can't see any of them doing something like this. I had to wait to see their mouths move in time to their speech before I could even begin to let my guard down also. It's been about a month since this incident. I have a lock on my door now, and I haven't seen or heard anything quite so terrifying since but I still get angsty at night, and hell, who wouldn't? And I tell you what else, too. When my family are heading out, and they ask if I want to go along these days, I say yes. I hope you've enjoyed our annual Halloween special. We'll be back next week with our regular episodes. The music you heard in this episode was a completely custom score by the talented Kevin Hartnell. You can find more of his work at kevinhartnell.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and early releases, visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast or subscribe directly in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. Happy Halloween. And don't forget to stay safe out there, y'all.